Hello, everyone. This is Brad Harris with a quick reminder. When you run out of How It Began content, I encourage you to subscribe to my new podcast, Context. In Context, we continue to investigate what created the modern world by considering great books on the subject and distilling their insights. I hope to see you there. You're never quite alone when you have a book. Opening those pages connects you to the thoughts of another, someone perhaps long dead, someone who maybe saw the world quite differently. But when you're reading what the author has set down, their thoughts can merge with yours. You can engage their ideas, and in so doing, test and refine your own. Every book is an intellectual crucible, and this is what makes them indispensable to the progress of knowledge. But up until around 500 years ago, the average person almost never saw one. We've all heard about how the printing press revolutionized book production. The name Gutenberg rings through the rhymes of our school curriculums. But the printed book itself, and how it transformed our ability to learn from each other, is often overshadowed by celebrations of the technical innovation of movable type printing. To be sure, that was a great achievement, but the real revolution was not in Johannes Gutenberg's perfected press. Rather, it was in how printed books, as opposed to handwritten ones, obliterated the intellectual barriers between us. The value of a printed book is its content, but the value of a handwritten book was mostly the object itself, the artistry of its script and adornment, its laboriously processed calfskin pages. A single book before the days of printing might take months to make and cost as much as an average laborer's annual salary. People privileged enough to obtain one often treated it like treasure worthy of worship. They might spend years poring over its pages, reading them aloud, deciphering them, copying them, memorizing them. In the age of handwritten manuscripts, one book could preoccupy the bulk of a scholar's productive years. They were that rare. But within less than 50 years of the first printed book in 1455, the Gutenberg Bible, more than 12 million books were printed in Europe, far more than had been produced in over a thousand years previously. And amid that explosion in quantity, the quality of what books meant changed. Individuals of even average means began to acquire and even accumulate books for the first time in history, and from this new practice, an intellectual revolution grew. Once scholars could access multiple books on a single subject, they could contextualize their claims, weighing books against each other and against their own understanding, rejecting or building on the insights therein. In turn, they could mass print their own insights, relaying the progress of knowledge into the future. And it wasn't words only. Book printing empowered authors to clearly communicate mathematical, geographical, and scientific ideas through perfectly replicated diagrams, maps, and illustrations. 
Less than one in ten handwritten books had ever been illustrated, but by 1550, more than half of all printed books were. The printed book democratized knowledge by enabling any literate person to access and propagate it themselves. As one historian of the book has eloquently pointed out, there is a major difference between learning to read and learning by reading, and through the printed book, the floodgates of learning by reading were opened. Let us journey back, then, to witness how we manage to connect with each other's ideas so much more efficiently, how we learned to learn so much more effectively, and how the ancient trickle of handwritten knowledge was transformed into the flood of printed knowledge. I give you the printed book and how it began. How It Began is supported by CuriosityStream, the best source of documentaries anywhere on the Internet. I'm currently watching a series there called Invisible Universe, which reveals incredible moments and movements in nature through cutting-edge high-speed photography that we otherwise never perceive. You can help support How It Began by checking CuriosityStream out for free at curiositystream.com forward slash howitbegan. A Christian monk, huddled over his desk, struggles to warm his cramped fingers amid the winter chill of northern Europe. With all of the unglassed windows and light wells of the monastery, there's little difference in temperature between outside and inside. A few fires burn here and there, Certainly one is kept constant in the monastery's kitchen, and another is shedding some warmth well down the hall. But this monk is too far removed to feel much of that meager comfort, and the clouds of his breath fill the space between his body and the desk. Silence is mandatory among the half-dozen monks working here, just as it is throughout Europe's medieval monasteries, where scores of scribes like this one toil away in writing rooms, which are called scriptoria, and represent one of the most important features of monastic tradition. Surrounded by his peers, the monk feels all the more isolated given his proximity to forbidden friendship. And although he lived a thousand years ago, spoke a language we would not understand, and imagined the world to be a completely different sort of place. He suffered the experience just the same as we would, and stole a moment from his duty to express it. Writing is excessive drudgery. It crooks your back, it dims your sight, it twists your stomach and your sides. The book which you now see was written while I froze, and what I could not write by the beams of the sun, I finished by candlelight. 
Historians have found many surreptitious scribblings like these in the margins of ancient manuscripts. Most such notes, which are called marginalia, represented an important part of the medieval scribe's job as they provided supplementary commentaries to manuscript translations. But some of them, like the one our monk has just written, drifted off topic and became more personal, providing one of the only ways to vent grievances in the austere silence of scriptoria. Yet this makes them all the more valuable in providing raw glimpses of the lived experience in the age before printing. Since the invention of writing itself, which occurred at least 5,000 years ago among the Sumerians of Mesopotamia in modern-day Iraq, practically anything to be recorded, from tax receipts and granary inventories to epic poems and religious teachings, had to be written by hand. And throughout the medieval period in Europe, which lasted roughly a thousand years from the 400s to the 1400s, most writing revolved around making copies of Bibles and other lengthy ancient texts. Given that modern Bible editions contain over 700,000 words, our monk might spend the better part of a season completing a single sacred chapter. Conditions were rough in the medieval scriptoria. Older scribes had notoriously poor vision after years spent curled over their dim workstations, and although they sometimes managed to work outside in the sunlight, even the slightest breeze or spit of rain could ruin their carefully organized work. In any case, it's winter here now, so our monk is confined to the stony cave of his scriptorium. Quill pen in one hand, penknife in the other, he traces out the dreary day one letter at a time. If he makes a mistake, he has a moment or two to scrape the ink with his penknife before it dries, and every few pages he'll pause to sharpen his quill with it. The master of the scriptorium will wander by periodically to check his work, and if the letters are not crisp and straight upon the page, our monk will have to recopy them. With any luck, this day's handwriting will earn him a draught of wine with supper to help ease his twisted stomach and relax his crooked back and warm his blood just enough to take the chill off of knowing it will all begin again tomorrow. Despite the hardships suffered by the scribes of Europe's medieval monasteries, life outside of the church's walls could be much harder. In the centuries that followed the collapse of Roman power in the West between the 300s and 400s AD, Christian monasteries became some of the only places in Europe where poverty, disease, and violence were held at bay, and practically the only context in which literacy and scholarship of any kind lived on. Monks came to see the preservation of writing as one of their essential duties, sparing religious teaching from the destructive chaos that was severing so many other threads of cultural wisdom. 
one of the greatest storehouses of knowledge in the ancient world, the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, which contained close to half a million scrolls covering subjects from astronomy to anatomy, had been completely destroyed by the 300s AD, leaving Europe's monasteries as the only sites west of Constantinople where books were safeguarded in some quantity. The first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, crowned in 800 AD in an effort to consolidate the rusty remnants of Roman authority in the West, was inspired by the monks and became one of the most ardent supporters of monastic book preservation. Ironically, his enthusiasm for literacy likely stemmed from his own inability to read or write. Charlemagne was a notoriously curious man, and the magic of words on the page that could preserve ancient wisdom surely dazzled him. He struggled throughout his life to learn to read, spending sleepless nights retracing the letters of his name and some favorite biblical passages. With his patronage, monasteries throughout Europe slowly managed to resurrect libraries with dozens, and in some cases even hundreds of volumes. Manuscripts circulated among them as they borrowed and copied from each other to boost their collections, and by around the year 1000, a few dozen of the largest monasteries had begun supplementing their income by selling books to aristocrats. Since many of these wealthy clients were illiterate just like Charlemagne, the book trade as it existed in Europe a thousand years ago was at least as much an exercise in status-seeking and an emulation of royal enthusiasm as it was about reading itself. Indeed, the books that monasteries sold were lavished with gold flaking, binding embroidery, vermilion reds and purples in the exaggerated capital letters of new chapters, and even full-page illustrations that highlighted the book's content for collectors who couldn't read. These books represented a store of wealth more than they represented a store of knowledge and so it was not uncommon for them to sit on shelves like trophies for decades without being touched. One of the most expensive parts of such books, however, was not in their adornment or handwriting, and not even in the gold flake of their illustrations, but in something more mundane. The animal hide that made up their pages. Animal hides have always been a medium of writing, and their superiority to other materials like papyrus ensured that the book, as opposed to the scroll or tablet, ultimately became the standard format of stored information. Papyrus, a cheap alternative to animal hide made by pounding strips of the papyrus plant stems together, did become popular as a writing medium around the Mediterranean for some 3,000 years between 2500 BC and 500 AD, owing to the ubiquity of papyrus plants along the Nile and its relatively easy manufacture. But although papyrus was cheap and could be rolled into scrolls for transport and storage, it offered a comparatively crude writing surface, and it was relatively fragile. Quill pens stuttered over the meshwork of its fibers, and papyrus was notorious for fraying at its edges. 
Likewise, in terms of space efficiency, rolled scrolls were far inferior to flat books, but puncturing, weaving, and folding papyrus flat along a creased spine like a book tended to tear it up, leaving scroll rolling as the only practical option for storing large amounts of information on papyrus. There is a lot of wasted space within the cylinder of a scroll. A typical scroll measuring 12 inches wide and 20 feet long contained less than one-fifth of the amount of information as a book occupying the same amount of shelf space. And to make matters worse for the scholar, rolling and unrolling the two ends of a scroll to locate a target passage, often with no page numbers to guide the search, took much longer than leafing through a book and left the scholar without a convenient way to reference the passage once found. Indeed, the main reason that papyrus scrolls achieved any lasting popularity at all was that animal hides were so much messier, labor-intensive, and more expensive to process. The ivory-smooth sheets of processed animal hide comprising medieval books began, of course, as the living flesh of sheep, cows, or goats. After its slaughter, bleeding the animal thoroughly was absolutely critical in yielding clean pages, for rushing through this gruesome step would result in finished pages with visible veins and capillaries, especially when held up to the light. Blood drained, the animal was then skinned, and here is where the pelt of an animal hide began its transformation into the parchment of a manuscript. The hide needed to be steeped in a frothy brew of fermenting liquor like beer, whose enzymes helped soften it and loosen its hairs, and whose effervescence helped clean it. Steeping lasted a few days, after which the hide was removed and hand-scraped with a blade before yet another round of soaking, this time in a mixture of milk, flour, and water. The second soak worked to saturate the hide's collagen fibers and suffuse them with the skin's native oil secretions. A few days more, and the now clean, hairless hide would be removed from its second bath and stretched tight upon a frame to dry, causing most of its collagen fibers to align with the plane of the skin and set into place, resulting in a firm but flexible section of parchment ready for writing. Much tougher than papyrus, sheets of parchment could be sewn securely together, either along their edges or along the spine of a central fold, which could be opened and closed countless times without tearing. Binding pages of parchment together within a thick leather cover proved so effective at conveniently preserving the writing therein that the form of the book as we know it evolved in tandem with parchment's historical development. After the year 500 AD, parchment largely replaced papyrus as a writing medium throughout the West, and along with it, the book replaced the scroll. Since the majority of medieval writing flowed from Christian monasteries, and since the literary focus of those monasteries centered on reproducing very long religious works, parchment's smoother, cleaner surface 
not to mention its more luxurious feel, compelled Europe's adoption of expensive parchment books over cheap papyrus scrolls. Scribes who spent years carefully tracing the passages of the Bible, for example, could never have been expected to sustain their quality or quantity of output using the relatively rough texture of papyrus. Mistakes would have piled up as their quills caught on the innumerable embedded stems, and ink would have bled through the innumerable stem channels. Having worked with parchment for any length of time, a seasoned scribe would likely have found papyrus intolerable. And what was more, the months or years worth of labor required to trace a single book of handwriting containing hundreds of thousands of words justified an expectation that the final product would last for generations. Rot often ruined papyrus amid the humidity and seasonal temperature swings of Europe, while parchment was practically impervious to the climate. Overall, then, the extreme cost of medieval books, based primarily on the premium of parchment, makes historical sense. Still, in light of the fact that a single Bible might contain upwards of 170 animal hides worth of parchment, it's also clear why there were so few books in circulation. Even one library of a hundred comparably sized volumes would require the slaughter of some 17,000 animals. Medieval books were the ultimate luxury items indeed. Their embodied wealth could be so overwhelming that the words they contained became merely an afterthought. And until a suitable alternative to parchment came along, this barrier of value would keep the majority of European minds isolated. Unknown to Europeans, a suitable alternative to parchment had already been innovated several centuries earlier by the Chinese, during the late Han Dynasty around the year 105 AD. Like their medieval counterparts, ancient Chinese scribes used local vegetation as the starting point for manufacturing writing material. In their case, choosing a tree called Chu, which is closely related to the mulberry tree, instead of papyrus reeds. How they processed their vegetation, on the other hand, differed markedly, and herein lay the key to the entire innovation. In fact, the Chinese could have used lots of different starting materials, so long as they were comprised mainly of cellulose fibers, from cotton and straw to seaweed and wood pulp, even papyrus for that matter, and their special technique would have rendered variations of the same final product. What the Chinese had invented was a process to make paper, a writing medium that cost about the same as the papyrus scrolls of the West, but that was lighter, smoother, suppler, and more uniform. What made all the difference was that Chinese papermakers thoroughly pulverized their starting materials in a mixture of water until they completely broke down and formed a gelatinous soup of individual fibers. Drawing a bamboo-framed cloth screen up through that soup deposited a gooey layer of fibers on the screen, which could then be set to dry in the sun, 
turning the viscous sheen of pulp into a nearly perfectly smooth plane of dry paper. Like so many of their inventions, however, the Chinese closely guarded this secret of papermaking for hundreds of years. It wasn't until the late 700s that paper drifted out of China to land in the Muslim world, with the first paper mill opening in Baghdad around the year 790. In the centuries that followed, as Muslim scholarship outpaced that of Christian Europe for a time, Muslim papermakers refined their technique and shifted their feedstock from wild vegetation to recycled linen rags, most of which had previously been worn as underwear, typically the first wardrobe item to wear out. Between the year 800 and 1100, papermaking was mechanized across modern-day Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Egypt, as rags ceased to be pulverized by hand and were instead bombarded by water-wheel-driven hammers. And everywhere paper went, higher demand for books followed, since paper books were so much more affordable than those made of parchment. Scholarship expanded well beyond the purely religious confines that dominated literacy in Europe as universities and medical schools across the medieval caliphate grew in large part by embracing more economical editions of books shorn of their embellishment. To be sure, books still had to be copied by hand, and some Muslim scribes still opted to work with parchment. But by offering a more affordable alternative to prospective book buyers, paper energized the book trade in the Muslim world, and university professors were among the main beneficiaries. Paper eventually landed in Europe in the year 1150, when a paper mill opened in the modest mountain town of Zativa in eastern Spain. Thereafter, the same sequence of events played out. European universities were only just then starting to be established, and the only way that most scholars could afford to build up their literary holdings was to opt for books of paper instead of parchment. The University of Paris opened that same year, in 1150, and Oxford University was up and running by 1167. The only European university to open prior to paper's arrival in Europe, in fact, was the University of Bologna in Italy, which was established in the year 1088. The historical correlation between the arrival of paper in Europe and the emergence of European universities suggests that the improved economics of the book trade enabled by paper was instrumental in finally pushing scholarship beyond the exclusive province of Christian monasteries. Monasteries had performed a vital historical role in preserving European scholarship through the Dark Ages, but those troubled days were long gone, and after nearly 800 years, from the collapse of Rome around 400 to the High Middle Ages around 1200, Europeans had accumulated enough civil security and economic momentum to make education a priority among the upper classes once again. Wealthy landowners began making a habit of sending some of their children to school, 
and more aristocrats sought private tutors as the expectation of literacy among elites began to rise. Artisans, lawyers, and merchants likewise found reading to be ever more useful in facilitating commerce. Reading helped them stay informed about developments and competition in their trade and enhanced their ability to market to wealthy customers. Over the course of the 1200s, book demand rose well beyond the supply that was traditionally available from monastic scriptorium. This was an unprecedented cultural development, and it triggered several changes in the centuries-old style of book production. Quiet Christian monasteries evolved into hives of cooperative literary output as Scriptorium began to organize what resembled a production line type of book manufacture. The labor to make a book was split up between specialists. Some scribes would focus exclusively on composing the artistic coloring of capital letters at the beginning of book chapters, for example, leaving the body of chapters to be copied by other teams of scribes. Monasteries also outsourced parchment manufacturing. For centuries, most monasteries had cultivated their own flocks of goats for slaughter and undertaken all of the messy work of transforming animal hides into parchment pages themselves. During the 1200s, this practice was subcontracted to local parchment manufacturers, one of many lucrative new specialties that characterized the rise of artisans in the High Middle Ages. Of course, paper mills were springing up all over Europe by then, too, and their spread supported an entirely new class of secular authors. By 1300, nearly as many new books were flowing out of universities as were issued from monasteries, and although most of these manuscripts were designed for students and university colleagues, enough of them trickled out into the public sphere to kindle a kind of popular interest in reading across Europe for the first time. And these books were no mere reiterations of Christian gospel. They contained sophisticated legal arguments, interrogations of Aristotelian philosophy, medical theories, travel diaries, and even incipient works of humanist literature and poetry. Before the end of the 1300s, scores of young writers, including Marco Polo, Petrarch, Boccaccio, Dante, and Chaucer, would emerge to help seed the flowering of Europe's literary imagination punctuating an artistically explosive era that historians call the European Renaissance. But in their wake, a clear pattern was established. As the supply of new books rose, the demand for books rose faster. Ironically then, the spread of paper ultimately did more to create the book supply crisis in Europe than it did to alleviate it. For by liberating literature from the flesh of livestock, paper only served to exacerbate the bottleneck inherent in the ancient tedium of hand-copying manuscripts. A new generation of authors could pen as many novel ideas as they wanted, but for those ideas to actually circulate and have any impact on the intellectual currents of Europe, they had to be hand-copied hundreds if not thousands of times. In many cases, this simply did not happen, 
either for lack of funds or labor, and the vast majority of Europeans who lived contemporaneously with Marco Polo, Dante, Chaucer, and other such luminaries never saw a single word they wrote. Unbroadcasted brilliance enlightened no one, and as long as hand copying was the only way to spread ideas, most people would remain in the dark. Within the pages of certain new books that were being published during this time, however, there surfaced a preview of a solution to the hand-copying problem. A preview of how books might be mass-produced at will, ending the supply crisis once and for all. And by the early 1400s, this solution was becoming visible even to Europeans who couldn't read. For centuries, book illustrations had been a premium feature, reserved for the most expensive manuscripts. The costs of labor and colored ink were certainly high, but hand-drawn illustrations presented a more fundamental problem. They were difficult to reproduce with precision. Even more so than hand-copied words, each illustration was essentially custom-made, and so it's not surprising that over the course of a thousand years between the 400s and 1400s, less than 10% of all new books contained any illustrations. But leading up to 1400, the growing popularity of books provided a new commercial incentive among publishers and pamphleteers to increase their output of illustrations, especially considering that illustrations could appeal to people who were only partially literate or even completely illiterate. The concept of printing images rather than hand-drawing them was already being established in a few specific applications outside the book trade, notably in stamped playing cards and religious pamphlets depicting popular biblical scenes. Likewise, coinage had been stamped with standard images for centuries. Within the first few decades of the 1400s, European book publishers began borrowing the concept and supplementing certain of their books with printed images made from woodcuts, whereby images were carved into blocks, painted with ink, and then pressed onto the page just like a stamp. The images were much cruder than hand-drawn illustrations and were offered almost exclusively in black and white, but woodcut prints proved highly appealing and tended to expand the book publisher's market. Realizing that almost all of the cost of woodcuts came up front in the form of carving the original image, some publishers experimented with having whole pages carved in wood, letters and all. These so-called block books made a brief appearance in the 1430s, but disappeared almost as fast as they had surfaced. Unfortunately, the delicacy of such woodcuts caused them to wear out too fast to be economical, and so woodcut printing remained confined to illustrations, with the labor of lettering carried on by scribes. And yet, to entrepreneurs of the mid-1400s, woodcuts signaled the larger potential of printing. If the technical problems could be overcome to make the printing of words more practical, 
the bottleneck in book production could be eliminated, and the publisher would become rich in the process. Since wood wore out too quickly to be economical for printing letters, metal became the obvious alternative. This gave entrepreneurs with any experience working metals a significant advantage. Johannes Gutenberg boasted a background as both a goldsmith and a blacksmith. He was quite comfortable working with a range of metals and casting them into all sorts of shapes. Almost immediately after first encountering a block book in the 1430s, Gutenberg appears to have set to work on the printing problem. For as early as 1439, he had already realized, as had many others, that casting entire pages worth of print in metal was impractical. Instead, Gutenberg cast individual letters, which could be assembled according to whatever page he wanted to print. The perfection of this system, called movable type printing, was certainly Gutenberg's most important technical breakthrough, but he also needed to master many other details before his printing press could become profitable. Among these, he needed to hone in on the right metal alloy to yield letters that were easy to cast with precision, took ink well, and were durable enough to hold up against the ceaseless compression of the press. Through the early 1440s, he found that a mixture of lead, tin, and antimony performed excellently, and he had also refined the mechanics of the press itself to ensure an even distribution of pressure upon the page. By 1450, Gutenberg's printing press was ready to tackle the most important existing book in all of Western literature, the Bible. The Gutenberg Bible, which debuted in 1455, was the world's first major printed book, and its reception in Europe was nothing short of sensational. Since Gutenberg was careful to emulate existing manuscripts, using the same Gothic script style and organizing the text on each page into two vertical columns, just like monastic scribes had long done, Many people did not initially realize that the Gutenberg Bible had been printed, but this only enhanced their amazement at the finished product. No one had ever seen such uniform lettering, such exact formatting, such clean lines or crisp curves in the script. Only around 170 Gutenberg Bibles were printed in the first edition, and all evidence suggests that they sold out immediately. Although they were still relatively expensive, Gutenberg Bibles were still much less expensive than hand-copied counterparts, even though most observers judged them to be of superior quality. Overall, his printing press proved to be a spectacular commercial success, and the excitement spread rapidly across Europe. People became so enthusiastic about the marvel of Gutenberg's breakthrough that his personal success was soon undermined by copycats. Within only 15 years of the printed book's debut, there was a printing press operating in every country across Europe. 
The number of manuscripts published annually in Europe through the first half of the 1400s slowly but steadily rose to around 50,000. Within a single decade of the printing press's appearance, however, that number spiked to a quarter of a million. By the year 1500, it was approaching one million, and by the early 1600s, some five million new manuscripts were being published in Europe every year. The printed book had ushered in a veritable knowledge explosion. Initially, the printing press was kept busy mainly reproducing ancient texts, including the Bible, Aristotle's books about metaphysics and politics, Ptolemy's Almagest, Galen's medical theories, and Aquinas's natural theology. This was a critical phase in the history of knowledge. By mass printing as many existing ideas about the world and humanity's place within it as possible, publishers in the late 1400s and early 1500s were at long last opening the gates to the groundwork of Western civilization's beliefs. Most people had not even been aware of Aristotle's philosophies, for example. Most people had never even held a Bible in their own hands. By dragging existing ideas out of the elite confines of monastic libraries and into the light of public scrutiny, printed books enabled scholars to engage those ideas on a widespread scale for the first time, a necessary first step if they were ever going to transcend them. The Protestant Reformation is one of the most famous consequences. For centuries, protests against the abuses of Catholic authority had amounted to nothing. But when Martin Luther was able to mass print his 95 theses detailing Catholic corruption in 1517, millions of people across Europe joined the Protestant cause. An even more important historical consequence of printing, however, was the scientific revolution. Most historians mark the beginning of the scientific revolution at Nicholas Copernicus's publication of a sun-centered model of the universe in 1543. Europeans traditionally believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, a belief that seemed rooted in common experience, but that had also been institutionalized based on the ancient arguments of Aristotle, and especially on those of the Greek astronomer Claudius Ptolemy, whose theories from the mid-100s AD had been woven into the fabric of Catholic dogma. As long as Ptolemy's data, mathematical analysis, and philosophical arguments justifying his theory of an Earth-centered universe remained inaccessible, it was virtually impossible to challenge them. But once Ptolemy's work was mass-printed, scholars could tackle it head-on. Copernicus recorded his own such research, noting that he had read the work not just of Ptolemy, but of many ancient astronomers in order to account for the mathematical problems long recognized to be associated with the Earth-centered model. 
through reading these newly printed materials, Copernicus was also able to assess over a thousand years worth of observational data about the motions of the stars and planets, a critical research exercise in a field like astronomy, where patterns in the data might only become visible over centuries. All of this preliminary reading empowered Copernicus to build a new mathematical theory that was more accurate in predicting the motions of the stars and planets, a theory which featured the Earth revolving around the Sun. Of course, mass printing existing work to provide scholars with a foundation on which to build was only the beginning of the scientific revolution. The printed book also ensured that new insights could be communicated with radically enhanced efficiency. The same year that Copernicus published his sun-centered theory, for example, a brilliant physician from the Netherlands, Andreas Vesalius, published his own discoveries about human anatomy. No one had ever performed human dissections as keenly as Vesalius, and he witnessed firsthand that literally hundreds of existing beliefs about human anatomy were wrong. Within mere months of the publication of Vesalius's new book that revealed his findings, titled On the Fabric of the Human Body, misguided beliefs about human anatomy a thousand years old were completely overturned. Among the most convincing elements of his book was the series of anatomical diagrams and illustrations that Vesalius had prepared in unprecedented detail. Whether or not they were even literate, Europeans could now see shockingly realistic depictions of the human body in various stages of dissection, amounting to a kind of virtual tour of Vesalius's labor. Medical students who obtained a copy suddenly found themselves in possession of knowledge that far surpassed what was offered by their professors, initiating sweeping disruptions in education across all fields of study. Rote memorization, which had performed such a vital educational function through the Middle Ages, swiftly eroded before the oncoming wave of learning by reading and scholarly expectations of knowledge were changed forever. Once books replaced brains as the vessel of all human knowledge, the complexity and scale of knowledge could evolve beyond the limits of any one individual's comprehension. Whereas medieval scholars had valued simple, stable maxims that could be easily memorized and transmuted through rhyme, Scholars coming of age during the scientific revolution valued discovery and detail, expecting that new information and refined arguments would come with each newly printed edition as research progressed. As the Scottish philosopher David Hume would reflect in 1771, the power which printing gives us of continually improving and correcting our works in successive editions appears to me the chief advantage of that art. Ultimately then, by making the advancement of knowledge so much more practical, 
The most important historical consequence of the printed book was to convince us once and for all that the future held more promise for humanity than the past. The pinnacle of the scientific revolution may have come with Isaac Newton's publication of his Laws of Motion in 1687, but the broader intellectual revolution that printed books had initiated only continued to accelerate. David Hume, from whom we've just heard, was born in 1711, by which time Isaac Newton had become an old man. But having leveraged mass printing to showcase such a concentrated series of discoveries, scientific revolutionaries like Newton had succeeded in popularizing the very concept of progress in human knowledge, which set the stage for Hume's generation to carry that new ethos to its culmination in the Age of Enlightenment. For his part, David Hume would be among the most influential Enlightenment writers, applying the methods of rational inquiry that he learned from reading scientific revolutionaries to the study of logic, ethics, and even the moral comparisons between what is and what ought to be. Like Voltaire, Adam Smith, Denis Diderot, Immanuel Kant, and other leaders of the Enlightenment, David Hume's extraordinary new insights on how humanity can better navigate toward the good and the true were cultivated through his connection to hundreds of other thinkers whose ideas he engaged in print. Those thinkers came from different countries and different times, but they were with David Hume in the moments that he read their works. And so it is with us. We, too, can be with David Hume in the moments when we read his essays and treatises. We can be with all of the Enlightenment thinkers, though they died centuries ago. And through that connection, we may participate in cultivating the progress of knowledge in our own time. Were it not for the printed book, the reformers, the scientific revolutionaries, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, the poets, the novelists, and the playwrights who have helped humanity to dream so much bigger would have been far more likely to have simply lived and died in intellectual isolation, leaving the rest of us isolated too, as just another generation adrift in an alternative history without printed books, where the inspiration of one rarely becomes the source of new inspiration in another. Thank you for listening. For more information, including a select bibliography for this episode, visit howitbegan.com. I'm Brad Harris. So long.